All right, welcome back to another episode of the Royals Farm Report. My name is Alex Duvall. I usually co-host this thing with my buddy Joel. Joel is out tonight. Joel is having some good old family time. Uh, appreciate all he does, but unfortunately, you're stuck with me tonight. Um, in addition, though, we get our founding father back, fresh off of an internship. So he's been a little, on a little bit of a hiatus. He's back, though. Uh, Patrick Brennan is back on the podcast. Pat, I appreciate you joining me tonight, man. Um, how, a, first, tell us about how your internship went, about you know all the stuff you were involved with this summer, and B, um, tell us how excited you are to be back. Uh, you're headed back to Manhattan, right? Yeah, um, I'm back in Manhattan right now. Um, got there on – traveled Monday, so got here really Tuesday. Um, kind of bummed that the engine tipped over, but really glad to be back, you know back home um uh haven't been in the same city for more than a week um for like the past couple months which i'm not used to i know a lot of people do stuff like that i'm typically not used to that so that it's nice to be staying in the same place um but yeah the internship went well um i had a lot of fun doing it um like i said kind of bummed it over but also happy that you know back home um, it was a lot of fun and, uh, no regrets with that. I, I guess I could have clarified there for anybody listening. Pat had an internship with the Cincinnati Reds. He was, um, kind of based out of Chattanooga, Tennessee for a while where their double A team was. Um, but a guy that knows plenty about how the minor league season operated this year is also joining us tonight. Um, Royals catcher slash first base prospect Saul Garza. Um, signed with the Royals as a free agent, an undrafted free agent back in 2020 in that shortened draft they had um, out of the Louisiana State University. Saul, I really appreciate you joining us tonight, man. Welcome on. Absolutely. Thanks, Alex. Patrick, good to be here. So, so I was in Louisiana, or I was in Baton Rouge one time. I I'm a big Mizzou fan, and so it was Drew Locke's senior year, the year he broke the record for um, passing touchdowns in the SEC. And we decided, me and a buddy decided to fly down to Baton Rouge, knowing it probably wasn't going to go well, but hoping it'd be competitive, hoping to have a good time. I have been to football games at Tennessee, Alabama, LSU, obviously Mizzou, um, and – Alabama has some different traditions that make it a little bit unique, but I think the most fun I've ever had at a football game on the road was in LSU. Baton Rouge on a Saturday night is absolutely nutty. How many of those games did you go to while you were playing baseball down there? Uh, so luckily I was there for two fall semesters, uh, fall of 2018 and fall of 2019. Um, 2019 was absolutely electric because uh, Joe Burrow and, you know, Tigers ended up winning it all. So that was, uh, that was pretty exciting. Um, and it being there in New Orleans turned out to be even, even cooler. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, all those games on there, the traditions in Baton Rouge on a game day, the tailgating, um, just everybody and it being the true Death Valley. Uh, I know being in Columbia, South Carolina, next to a few Clemson fans, they were on me about Clemson being the Death Valley. But 
I, I mean, come on, everybody knows it's down south in Baton Rouge. So that's outstanding. Um, so you so you go play college ball at LSU. You in 2020, they have the shortened draft by all accounts. Um, are probably getting drafted in that draft had it been a normal draft. I think the college seniors, I, I don't know really what it is, why the college seniors kind of got squeezed that year. The guys who had been around a little bit longer, why they got squeezed out of that draft process. But in a catch 22, um, you go undrafted, but you do get the option then to sign with whatever team you want. You're one of the most highly coveted undrafted free agents in that class just because of the way the, the chips fell. You end up signing with the Royals. You're from South Texas. You go to school in Louisiana. What about the Kansas City Royals drew you to them as an organization? And, and, and kind of what, what brought you to the Royals? Because, again, you had, you had your pick of the litter. And you came to an organization with, obviously, Salvador Perez catching in the big leagues, um, a, a system that is loaded with incredible talent throughout the system at, at the catcher spot. Um, what drew you to the Royals? And then how have you kind of uh, found your way fitting in and just kind of, um, you know, being yourself in this, in this system? Uh, yeah, great question. So I think biggest thing for me um, was just the connection that I felt with Kansas City um, and the year prior. Um, I, after my first year in Baton Rouge, I was a draft-eligible sophomore, and um, the Royals drafted me, obviously, that year. Um, decided to come back to school just because that's the, what uh, we thought was best. and then. Um, but just building the relationship with the Royals that year and then in 2020 being able to choose between other teams. Um, I think that's what ultimately led me to uh, signing with the Royals. I just felt comfortable with the front office and the way that um, I've heard they handle things. Um, and um, I mean, there's a lot of other Texas kids that end up going with the Royals. I know we have quite a few kids from, uh, I mean, KLM Schaff and Corpus, Nick Lofton, Corpus, Ace, I mean, Ace Lacy's in the Bernie area, um, just outside of San Antonio. There's, I mean, there's so many guys in the Houston area, Dallas. Um, we just felt comfortable. Uh, some of these guys we've played with before. And I think that's kind of was a kind of what pushed it over the edge and um, made me choose Royals. I never thought about that in a recruiting sense and, and, and the idea that, you know, once the draft ends that everybody can be recruited in some ways. Um, you mentioned Kale Emshoff, you mentioned uh, Nick Lofton, but the Royals actually now that I think about it, you mean Hunter Dozier and Ryan O'Hearn both trained down there. Um, it, so when you're, when you're, when you're making your decision to sign, like, are you, are you allowed to like call, um, you know, call up Kale Emshoff and kind of like talk about like, Hey, you know, not that you did this, but like, are you allowed to call other players, um, see where they're going, see how much they like the Royals? Um, like a guy that's already in the system and say, hey, I'm thinking about signing with the Royals. Like, how do you like it? Like, are you allowed to talk to other players? Or is that something that you have to do like solely through your agent? Right. I think um, so for me, some of these players um, before before the draft happens, um, I mean, you, you, I mean, you just have prior relationships with them. So it's really just something of like, Hey, we're working out together and just 
I mean, just talking about baseball and stuff and how things are going, but it's, I don't really think, um, for, I mean, for me in any way, it was it something where it was like me talking to other guys that were already with the Royals and then, uh, them trying to like, tell me about how, um, the organization is and stuff like that. It was, you know what I mean? It was just more of felt, uh, comfortable with everything and just that's the way things turned out but yeah I, I really don't know if if uh if that's how things work or uh, in the sense of like being able to talk to other guys so you get you get you sign with the royals last year obviously the season was canceled due to covid where, where did you go from there so you you sign out of lsu did you hang out in Baton Rouge for a while? Did you go straight to Arizona? Did they, I mean, what was your training regimen like? And, and were you allowed to start practicing with the club right away? Right. So for me, I wasn't until um, after the signing or the group of us signees that year, we went to Kansas City uh, and we got to meet at Kaufman um, and had, we had, uh, I want to say in three to four days or three to five days in Kansas city, just with meetings with um, just like how things, the front office and just getting everybody getting comfortable with each other. Um, and then after that, we were came back home, did my training regimen here in te South Texas. Uh, there's a group of guys on here that I, we would work out with. Um, and then uh, some times I would go to Baton Rouge, but for the most part I was here. But I really didn't go back to Arizona until Instructs last uh, last fall. Um, Instructs was, I mean, it was uh, into November. No, it was close to eight weeks, I think, last last year. Um, and then obviously after Instructs, nothing until spring training this year. Every hitter we've talked to so far, um, we've talked to Nick Prado, MJ Melendez. We've talked to Kale Emshoff a little bit. They all talk about the skills acquisition camp that you guys went through that fall and, and, and all the things they learned. Vinny Pasquantino talks about it as well. All the things you guys did at that skills acquisition camp and the bond that was created between guys like Alex Zumwalt, Drew Saylor, Keone DeRenny and um, Mike Tosar, all the hitting coaches who were there, all the guys moving around, all the players who were there and the bonds that were built as being, you know, they've all talked about as being like a game changer in terms of not only their approach and their, the way they approach their plate appearances, but their swing, their bats, their mentality for hitting. It just seems like the Royals have, and I know you weren't there beforehand to, to kind of see that play out. It just seems like the Royals have, really changed the way they, they talk about hitting and the way they approach the player development side of things. Um, can you speak at all to like what that act was, that skill acquisition camp was like last off season where you guys go down to Arizona in the fall and all of the things that are going on, like, because there's no games going on, right? You guys are just there practicing. You're getting some swings in, maybe getting some live BP if there's arms that need to be throwing, but what was that camp like and how much did you learn while you were there? So you learn uh, quite a bit about how the different organizations do things in, t in the terms of like uh, 
I mean, just situational defenses, uh, bunt coverages, stuff like that. That's really when you get comfortable with all that. Um, usually, uh, especially your first off season coming into the Royals. But I think um, I'm really excited because uh, in two weeks, that's when uh, I'll be reporting for skills acquisition camp um, again. And that's something where I think it's going to be very focused on uh, the plan and approach um, and something how, like you said, guys, uh, older guys, MJ Melendez, Vinny Pasquantino, uh, Nick Prado, how they said it was a game changer. Um, I'm really excited just to go out there and see, just be able to interact with everybody, bounce around ideas and uh, everybody just kind of getting better and learning from each other. So um, I'm pretty excited for that. I'm going to lean on Pat here really quick to, to kind of clarify a point for me, but they have in the analytics community, we have what's called um, like level equivalencies or major league equivalencies. Pat, what's the, what do we, what do you, what do you call it when you compare like sec baseball to high A competition? Uh, usually I think the general term for that would be like level equivalencies, major league equivalencies, MLEs um is what i call them but okay. yeah uh basically comparing the talent level, of each so, then, level. so correct me if i'm wrong i think we've had this conversation before is the way that the analytics community kind of looks at it is that the sec playing baseball in the sec is roughly equivalent to an average high a league i would say i mean obviously i've never played in the sec um i'll defer to saul on that but uh the, I think the numbers say that, yeah, the best teams um, in the SEC would probably be able to, you know, high A talent level. Uh, I think SEC as a whole is probably, like, low A. Um, and I know Saul's played at both uh, uh, those levels recently. So uh, maybe he could have some comments on that and how those two leagues compare. Um, that, that was my next question then is, Saul, how, how would you compare those two leagues is – the, you know, going from facing SEC pitchers, you know, Jack Leiter, Kamar Rocker, going straight from facing guys like that to professional baseball, you started your career in Arizona and wound up in Columbia for the rest of the season. How would you compare SEC arms to what you saw professionally? Yeah, another good one. Uh, I think – so the way that I kind of see it is – I think SEC and low A baseball are pretty comparable. Um, I think uh, in the SEC, like you said, like those bigger time arms, especially that are polished guys, um, those guys might be high A, uh, maybe double A talent. I, I mean, those big time Friday night arms, like they're ready to go. But I would say overall baseball wise, um, I'd say it's pretty, I think it's pretty similar. Um, I think there's guys that are in minor league baseball, low A might have a higher ceiling in terms of um, how projectable they can be if they figure their stuff out. Um, but I think in terms of baseball, uh, 
fundamentally based fundamental baseball um sec might actually might have advantage at low of low a i had a scout compare to me one time and um basically the idea if you're not familiar with those of you listening if you're not familiar with the idea of how like college baseball operates in the fall is you know in the fall in any scrimmage in any game you're going to run out everybody you can and, and, and just get looks at guys. And then in the spring, it's your 23 or 24 best dudes that are getting a majority of the time and other guys will mix in. But the way I had a scout explain it to me one time is like watching low A baseball is like watching fall practice in college where you have, you know, these big time high school recruits, these 19 year olds that come into LSU and Vandy pumping 94, 93, and have absolutely no idea what to do with it. They got wild stuff that's off the charts, and they have no idea where it's going, where you get into spring ball, and maybe the guys who are pitching are only 91, 92. Maybe their breaking stuff's a tick lower than the guys you saw that fall, but they can command it, they can spot up, and I think that's probably the difference between going from like low A to high A. Um, for anybody listening, Saul, you went, um, went to Arizona and absolutely cleaned up. You weren't there very long. But while you were there, you absolutely cleaned house at the plate, go to low A and had yourself a nice little season there as well in 43 games. Um, if I remember right, you you got off to a little bit of a slower start, but your overall numbers at low A, uh, batting 281 with a 382 on base, 813 OPS, and a little over 150 plate appearances, um, seems to tell the story accurately that you like what you were just saying is it's comparable to the sec you step in you handle handle yourself i would imagine that next year the plan is something like high a hope to get by hope to get to double a or fill in a triple a if need be um on that note they had you playing some first base there in columbia as well as you did catch a couple times correct right a couple times but for the most part uh i was playing first base so, so how does how did that transition work? Is it something where they were, you know, go play first base, let's focus on the bat, and then we can move you back behind the plate? Because the Royals, like we talked about uh, a little bit off the air before we started recording, um, the Royals do a great job of keeping really good catchers churning through their system. So what was that transition to first base look like, and how did that help you uh, focus on your bat and, and potentially, you know, are you looking forward to playing some more first base as you keep moving? Right. So I think, uh, I think so playing first base definitely was something that, um, it, I thought it was extremely valuable. Um, just because I played a little bit of first base in high school, uh, didn't really play much first base in college. So I kind of, everything was catching focused, uh, kind of like lost. Uh, a little bit of like first base fundamentals cuts and relays. So I really had to freshen up on that. I think my time in Columbia helped me tremendously in that sense of just overall feel for the game back at first base, which is something that um, I think as a catcher uh, or looking into the future, that's just another skill that I'll have and feel comfortable with. Um, so Sam catch, I could, I mean, be catching and then, instead of a complete off day or DH, maybe play first base. Uh, just something that you give yourself um, just 
a few ways you can be valuable to the organization that you're a part of. So um, I think, uh, yeah, I think something that looking forward now, this off season, I have a good idea where instead of only doing catching base focus, I can also be taking uh, quite a few ground balls um, and just preparing myself for um, 2022. We're seeing that a little bit right now in Kansas city where, you know, MJ Melendez knocking on the door of the big league. Salvador Perez is already there. Nick Prado and Vinny Pasquantino are both pretty close to getting to the big leagues where now positional versatility is going to help us get as many guys in the lineup as, as possible. So I agree, you know, and I'm, and I'm glad to hear you, you know, mentioned that playing first base is, you know, valuable to you because obviously, you know, there's something about pitching and catching that it is, it's addicting and, and catchers love to catch and pitchers love to be on the mound. So, um, I can imagine getting out from behind the plate is both a break for your legs and, you know, for your, for your mental as well, but um, also does add some positional versatility. I got to ask you about catching some of those arms down there at high, at low a there's some, you know, there's some guys down there in Columbia that I really enjoyed watching this year. You know, I don't think any of them that, that were, that were ended the season in low a with you. Um, you know, or guys that are going to like fly up at any time soon, but they all have these really unique abilities that make them really intriguing to watch moving forward. I think Adrian Alcantara and um, Luinder Avila both flashed a really, really good changeup that's worth watching. Anderson Palino and Matt Still both had really nice fastballs that really allowed the rest of their stuff to play well. Um, you know, tell us about a guy or two that you got to catch while you were in Columbia. Um, whether it was in the bullpen, whether it was just catching them pregame, helping them out, or even in a game. Tell us about a couple guys you caught and um, why should we be excited about some of those arms down there? Yeah, so uh, my time in Columbia, really, um, once I got there, it was kind of more of a, hey, um, I hope you have a first base glove with you um, because here we're focused on you're probably from what I've heard, like we're probably um, just, we want you to, to get reps at first base. Um, and I really only caught, I know I got to catch Rylan Kaufman twice. Um, he's a guy that I think um, when he's on the mound doing what he's doing, he's, I mean, he's got a lot of potential. Um, and I think he, um, if he puts like one or two things together and sticks with it, he's got the chance to be a big leaguer for a long time. So, um, a guy like him, I think is a guy that I think could in the future, definitely keep an eye on. Um, there's a few other guys that I could say, um, we had a guy, a lot of, quite a few guys that, um, would just go back out there and compete and, Ultimately, you want a guy that is competing for you and your team. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Matt still, Zach Phillips was a guy that was com competitor out there. Um, uh, I know Emilio Marquez, um, he's a guy that when I was in low A, he was absolutely dominating. Um, and he ended up moving up to IA. Um, but, yeah, there's – I mean, there's so many guys that um, – I think have a, a really good shot of, of having a future, a long future. 
there's one more guy I want to ask you about, and that's um, your is a teammate of yours in low A. It was Omar Hernandez. Omar Hernandez is a 19-year-old kid that was catching, and he caught it full season ball all year. Any teenager that goes and plays in full season ball is given a tall task. That is really, really difficult um, for anybody in their first full pro season to go to as a teenager to go to full season ball and, and play the entire grind of a minor league season. Um, so all between watching, getting – so last year at Low A, we got to watch Kale catch for a little bit. Omar caught a lot and then got to watch you catch a couple times. That is some of the best – like overall talent I've seen any minor league team have behind the plate in a, in a while. It's ironic because another one was having Sebastian Rivero and MJ Melendez behind the dish at the same time on the same team um, in 2018 and 2019 brag about Omar Hernandez for a little bit, because watching him catch um, you know, not that, not that we expect anybody to be really good, but you know, coming out of college, the there, there's just more reports. There's, there was, more opportunities to watch you catch at like at LSU and then coming to Columbia. Whereas Omar Hernandez, again, like a teenager, there's not a lot out there. He was so impressive to watch. And I really think that, um, you know, I, he's a guy, a lot of folks don't talk about that I think should probably be mentioned a little more because he is really solid behind the plate, but what's it like working with other catchers who are also really talented being on the same team, being able to bounce ideas off each other and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, especially for me when instructs this or actually spring training this past year, uh, that's when we really had a bunch of guys there that we can feed ideas off of. Um, I think Omar, he's a guy that, like you said, he's 19 years old competing at, uh, at, in low A, um, with some guys, 22, 23, 24 year olds, um, and just him going out there and competing every day. Um, I think uh, how aggressive he is defensively when in terms of backpicking runners is something that he does a great job doing. Um, and I mean, all the great catchers do, they're just fearless, you know, just making throws back, trying to pick runners off, trying to make things happen for their team. Um, so I think that's uh, something that, I'm really excited about when I get to watch him catch. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a competitor. So um, offensively, he's got a few years to kind of really dial it in and get to where he wants to be. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, obviously everything in there, he he has everything in there. Just got sense of old, getting older, maturing, and uh, getting more at bats. Now, I've seen you throw a baseball the first time that you played first base at a really high level was probably in Columbia, right? Cause you said you didn't catch much at LSU. So the first time that right. Omar turned and fired the ball down to you at first base, did it catch you off guard? Were you, did it kind of make you appreciate a little more of the work you were making first base and doing while you were back picking right. guys? Is it kind of a shock? Definitely. Definitely. Just because uh, it's a whole new perspective of being on the receiving end of that play um, really wanting your guy to like, hey, throws a little this way. I need to be good, and he needs to be able to trust that I can pick that ball and make this tag. Um, so, yeah, definitely something that now my transition to first base is something where I'm putting in quite a bit of extra time, really just trying to figure out all those little 
those little things that you just really just take reps. I, um, I never, I was a PO in high school and in college and in high school, our, my summer after my senior year, um, I went and played first base cause we were blowing some team out and my a kid that I played with at the time and was actually my roommate in college as well. Uh, Grant Gavin, he, he pitches in the, for for Omaha right now. He was on the mound um, finishing up what was probably another complete game. And he has the quickest feet of any right-hander that I ever played with. He has really quick feet, and then he threw the ball 89, 90 mile an hour. He turned and fireball over at me. And I don't ever think I really – I really don't think I ever saw it. It just kind of popped my glove, and instinctually I reached down and tagged the, the runner. He was safe. But as I went to throw the ball back to the pitcher, I realized that I was like, okay – I, I picked off a lot because I didn't throw very hard. I was kind of slow to the plate. So my neutralizer was to back pick a lot over at first base. And I didn't realize how difficult that was at first base to be trying to field your position because we refer to third base as the hot corner. But first base is the same basic spot for a left-handed hitter. You're trying to field your spot. You're trying to be alert, not get smoked over there. And then you got guys throwing baseballs at you. So – I, I can imagine it being a little bit similar as a catcher moving over there, but as a pitcher moving over there who wasn't very athletic in the first place, that was kind of eye-opening for me. I didn't realize what first basemen go through, which is part of why I think it's a little bit funny too. We, when we talk about first base as being, you know, again, the, the analytics community will oftentimes refer to first base as being one of the easier positions on the field. I'm like, yeah, that's fine until you have to go over there and actually do it. Um, so it's good to hear your transition over there is going well because again, it's, it's an underrated position on the field, especially if you can really help out an infield, help out your pitchers and catchers with back picks and stuff. So um, it's good to hear. Right. For sure. All right. So um, last question we got for you that we ask everybody that joins the podcast. If you could go back in time and relive one moment in baseball history live and in person, what would you go back and watch? Go back, relive. Uh, all right, so probably um, I'd go back to high school. Um, high school, uh, my brother's two years older than me, and um, he was a pitcher, and just I was able to catch. Uh, I think he had a five inning no hitter, or five or seven inning six. Uh, inning no hitter um so just being able to catch that was pretty cool um that'd probably be my if i could go back and relive a moment probably be that one did you grow up a rangers fan or astros fan there in texas uh more of a rangers fan uh over astros i know uh one of my best buddies right now he's a huge astros fan uh so always just kind of giving him crap about the astros (laughs) um (laughs) But no, it's, I mean, it's, it's great. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's cool. I just, everyone's out here trying to <laughs> rep their teams and stuff. But did you, did you grow up a Pudge fan? I did. Uh, I mean, obviously one of the best catchers to ever live. So, uh, just growing up, kind of watching him, and it was, it was pretty cool. That's awesome. Saul, thanks for joining us tonight. Um, We appreciate you coming on. 
good luck at uh, fall camp here in a couple of weeks and good luck to you next season. Um, I'm sure we'll talk to you again sometime soon, but thank you again for coming on, man. Awesome. Alex, Patrick, it was a pleasure. Appreciate it, guys. Absolutely. Good luck, Saul. All right, we're going to take a little ad break right here. On the other side of the break, Pat and I will talk about some of the guys that are – some of the other guys in the Royal System and uh, currently playing in the playoffs. So stick around. We'll be right back. All right, thanks again to Saul Garza, um, former LSU Tiger. Just wound – just wrapped up his season with the Columbia Fireflies. Um, I was going to look it up. And I meant to during the break, but they don't have um, stats for him on fan graphs. I don't understand why Saul isn't on the fan graphs page. Um, I'm, I'm still looking because he should absolutely be like he had 150 plate appearances or more for the Royals low A affiliate. I don't understand why I can't find his name on here. I'm on his player page right now. You are? Um, yeah. Well, why on earth can I not find him? I just went to the I can search. Find him. I was going to make a point of what league were the were the Royals not low? Was Columbia not low A Southeast or is it just low A East? Low I a no, East I, I'm still trying to pick it all up. Okay. Here's his player page, finally. Um, so Saul got off to a little bit of a slow start when he arrived for the first time in low A. But if we just minimize his numbers and we only look at how he did from August 1st through the end of the season, he hit 310 with a 409 on base percentage and a 140 weighted runs created plus to close out his season there at low A. Um, He still struck out a little bit. He was still striking out about 30% of his plate appearances over that stretch, but he got his strikeout rate down. He got his walk rate up to about 10%. So, after he kind of got used to the flow of low A, he did a really good job of, of gelling in the middle of that lineup and kind of helping that Fireflies offense not be so anemic like it was for part of the season. Um, I think it's interesting the Royals have moved him out from behind the plate a bit. I know they've got depth. They've got Salvi and Gallagher and Rivero and Melendez, who are all apparently big league ready. Then behind them, you have Kale Emshoff and Freddie Fermin, who I think are at the moment, viable big league depth options in terms of just guys to have around. And then you have Saul Garza and Omar Hernandez at low A, probably going to be high A next year. Um, Coming out of LSU, I really thought that his arm was going to allow him to stay behind the plate more. And I still think he's going to do a really good job behind the plate. Like I think catching will be in his future um, in some capacity, but the Royals didn't move Melendez out behind the plate early on. They let him catch, 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 catch. Now you sign Salvador Perez to this massive extension and you're stuck with Melendez, who might be your second best prospect overall. And his only position that he's ever played is catcher. And so now they're experimenting with him, with him at third base. People have talked about him playing the outfield. Um, Pat, I want to get your take on this. A, do you think the Royals should have maybe tried to move Melendez out from behind the plate earlier? And B, do you think he's capable of playing third base or maybe even left field in the big leagues? Well, to answer your first question, um, I think if we flash back to 2019, they probably didn't see this as like a huge problem uh, roster-wise. Um, and, I mean, who could blame them? I mean, Melendez was really struggling in Wilmington and was probably on the verge of being a non-prospect the way he was hitting. Um, 
And, you know, Sally, um, as great as he is, he was coming off Tommy John. Uh, he was entering his 30s uh, as a uh, player that's catched, caught a lot. Um, so uh, there were unknowns there. You didn't know how much he, he hadn't signed his extension yet. So, um, yeah, they probably weren't, weren't thinking about it too much, uh, I would imagine. And then every then COVID hits after the shortened season, everything changes. Melendez uh, literally be, turns into one of the best hitters in minor league baseball, and Perez uh, breaks the catcher home run record. So uh, literally couldn't have flipped more. Um, so now it is a problem. Um, I guess you can look at it as a good problem, but um, so I don't think I don't necessarily blame them for not testing it out earlier. Um, uh, I know most reports have Melendez are worst as a above average defender behind the plate. Um, so they probably didn't see the need for that. Now there clearly is a need to maybe start trying some things out. And as for what positions he could go to, um, they've decided third base would be the first test. It looks like, um, and honestly, I, I don't know any better than them. They would know best. Um, where um, it may be worth trying him out at. Um, I know you probably can't pick up too much from how he performed defensively in the few games he played there uh, up in Omaha. Uh, but I would like to see them – all I would say is I just – for maybe in the winter, um, come spring training um, next season, wherever he's playing, um, probably, yeah, I would just say continue testing – things out um you can keep catching but uh give him some reps at first uh just to add some defensive versatility uh, keep giving him reps at third see if anything can stick there um and then he's even i think capable his athleticism would maybe suggest corner outfield is worth a try at least um i know there's a few catchers a few catchers that have made that conversion and uh have been able to handle it to some level. Uh, Kyle Schwarber comes to mind. Uh, there's other catchers that are capable of going to the outfield when needed, um, like Wilson Contreras, uh, Stephen Vogue, uh, Jorge Alfaro. Um, and a lot of those guys uh, sort of compared to Melendez somewhat. I know Contreras and Alfaro uh, in that they're, they have above average athleticism for a catcher. Um, so I think I would like to see uh, them give left field and right field some shots. Um, I think when you look at the lineup, uh, if you could pick a position for him to work out at, it would be a corner outfield. Um, that creates, I think, the least amount of uh, log jam at well, the major league level. And like you said, it's it's almost like the path of, of least resistance is in left field. Um, mm-hmm. Andrew Benintendi's started off great. He's been great lately. I have no problem with them bringing him back next year unless somebody wants to blow your doors off in a trade. But when Benintendi is inevitably moved at some point or becomes a free agent, mm-hmm. left field is wide open. I think left field would be a great spot for Melendez to begin taking fly balls because you have Kyle Isbell who can play center or right or both. You go get a free agent they can play the other. You put Melendez in left. Melendez in left long term, like you saw with Wilson Contreras who plays left field quite a bit. If Melendez can catch 60 to 70 games a year, Salvi catches 100 games a year, 
DHs the rest. Melendez goes and plays left field and gets the occasional day off against these tough lefties. You've got like the perfect storm of, of, of catchers in your, in your system on your team. And so it's, it's funny to me, they moved into third base first, like the only position where there's a log jam potentially between Whit Merrifield, Nicky Lopez, Adalberto Mondesi, and Bobby Witt Jr. needing time on the infield. It just seems like left field would have made most sense. Um, because I think athletically, Melendez reminds me more of like Jorge Alfaro. I think it's like a great comp, like just in terms of his athletic ability. Moves fairly well behind home plate and then has a cannon for an arm. Um, you know, Melendez looked fine playing some third base. I'd like to see him go play left field a little bit. I do think it's noteworthy they've tried moving Prado out to right field a bit just to see what that kind of looks like, potentially making way for Vinny Pasquantino to play first base. So maybe the thinking is we don't want to move all these guys to the outfield because we're not going to need all of them to play out there. But it does create an interesting scenario um, where, like, you could potentially have Melendez in left, Isbell in center, Prado in right, Bobby Witt Jr., Nicky Lopez, Whit Merrifield, Vinny Pasquantino, and Salvador Perez all in the same lineup. I think that would be hilarious. Let's just go bats first, bats only, and then if any if they all hit, it won't matter what their defense is like. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, and to go back on Prado um, and right field, uh, I remember uh, if I remember correctly when he was first drafted, um, a lot of his scouting reports mentioned the possibility of corner outfield for him. Uh, I feel like that kind of faded away. Uh, throughout time uh, as more and more he's stuck at first base. Um, but, you know, Royals apparently opened out to try it again. Um, I remember they've tried it before. Um, the guys like, I think they, they briefly tried it with Eric Hosmer um, early in his career. Um, so, and obviously predicting guys, how they fare at other positions is nearly impossible to do. Um Positives you could say about Prado in the outfield and his profile is he was obviously a well-regarded pitching prospect in high school. Um, so he's probably got an above-average arm for a first baseman, you could assume. Um, so he's got, you know, a good feel uh, defensively at first. Um, I'm not sure how that would translate to the outfield. It's probably different for different guys, but that doesn't hurt. Um, so uh, Royals. The thing about this, too, with Melendez and Prado, um, we can go back to uh, Will Myers, um, who was a catcher uh, and converted. And now has basically, I feel like, played almost everywhere on the field in his big league career. Um, he's first, third. Uh, I think he's even played a little second, all outfield. So um, if you're looking for a historical comp for the Royals and that, I'd look to Will Myers. Um, and maybe hope out the same with Melendez or Prado. I want to ask you this question, and you can feel free to answer it as in-depth or as little as you want. Having now worked behind the scenes a little bit for a big league club, getting a little bit of insight as to how these guys think and to what they're looking for, and you know, just being around it a little bit, mm -hmm. if you had to take – a bat right now, right now you could pick between having Pasquantino's bat or Prado's bat long-term. How do you evaluate the bats? Because Vinny Pasquantino had one of the best 
minor league seasons with the bat we've seen in a long time. Like the only other comparable for such a low strikeout rate and such a high power output in terms of like ISO recently, it was like Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Alex Bregman, and a couple other super prospects. Like his bat was insane. And I know Prado hit 30 home runs, but Pasquantino hit 24 home runs and then 30 some doubles. He was no slouch in the power department, only he doesn't strike out. And he still walked 12 and a half percent of the time. So it's not like he's not, he's, you know, swinging all the time and not walking. If you had to pick a bat, who are you taking? And how do you kind of evaluate that with Prado obviously being the the younger player with a better track record, a better pedigree, but we've, we, we've got a guy in double a who kind of gives him a run for his money. Oh yeah. Um, I think when you talk about the seasons that all the guys at the upper levels have had, uh, Witt, Melendez, Prado, Pasquantino, um, they've all performed terrifically. Um, I think you have to acknowledge, though, um, the offensive environment in double and triple A this season were insane uh, for whatever reason. Uh, you can have your theories, uh, use ball, but um, uh, I think out of those four, Pasquantino is probably the one that benefited the most off uh, the offensive environment if it was the ball was in fact juiced. Um he's not a guy that will light it up necessarily in BP. He's not a guy that's gonna, you know, he's capable of hitting one four hundred and eighty feet uh, like Melendez or Witt. Um he he just hits. He knows how to hit. Uh, that's all I know that's simple, but that's all you can say. Um and I know we were talking in the group chat last night of uh you tweeted out that something about him and uh, Billy Butler, and I thought that was the perfect comp because Butler was the same way. Um, you know, you look at a guy his size, uh, did not hit a lot of home runs um, other than that one 2012 season. Um, uh, so, but he he stuck around in the big leagues and even had put together some good seasons at the plate because he simply just knew how to hit. He knew how to control the strike zone. Um, but all throughout his career from start to finish, basically posted good K and walk numbers. Um, Pasquantino's done that the same through basically every level he's played at. Um, so that's what I would try to focus on with him is, uh, he, he knows he does the same thing. He, uh, controls the plate. He knows how to hit. Um, and I think guys like that will have easier transitions from double A to triple A to the majors. Um, another guy we can sort of maybe not as quite as good a prospect pedigree, but you look at the Cubs right now, Frank Swindell. Uh, no one really gave him a chance forever, even though he was kind of the same way. All he did was hit. Um, and uh, maybe he wasn't posting as quite as good peripherals as Pasquantino, but he finally got his shot and. He's showing that guys that know the strike zone well and have a good approach to the plate, you know, are going to have easier transitions to the big leagues. I agree. And so on the Royals Review radio podcast last night, I said that my opening day lineup would consist of Vinny Pasquantino at first base with Prado and Omaha because I legitimately think that Vinny is more big league ready than Nick Prado right now. I also think Nick Prado long-term – has the higher ceiling, 
like I said, he's younger, hits the ball a little harder, a little further. There's, there's really no right or wrong answer. I don't think. I think when, when I'm evaluating the two of them, Nick Prado and Vinny Pasquantino have actually really similar plate appearances. Like their approach to the plate, to the, to how they attack the strike zone is really similar. I think Vinny has more of a contact approach and sells a little bit of his power for it where Nick Prado will sell a few swings and misses in order to gain some extra juice behind the, behind the punch. And so it's really interesting to kind of, to kind of gauge which is more valuable to which hitter. And like I said, there's no wrong answer. I don't think that either of them is wrong for doing so. Prado hits for more power. Vinny hits, doesn't strike out near as much. And so I think you're just kind of in, in a, in a constant cycle of which, which do you prefer and having both of them in the system, Again, very similar approaches, very similar kind of fundamental swings, and one of them doesn't strike out, hits for a little bit less power. One hits for a lot more power, doesn't strikes out a lot more. If one of them doesn't work out, you have the other one there in the system. Mm-hmm. And so I think the Royals are in a really good spot at first base moving forward, and I do think we're going to see them try to put Prado in right field or let Vinny DH full-time. We think about two of those, the best Royals teams we've seen in the recent history they both had a DH, a permanent DH plugged into the middle of the lineup. You know, the Royals talked about, we want to have more of a flexible DH and guys rotating through there like a day off with nine position players, right? And the best two teams they've ran out there had a permanent DH. So I don't think there's a reason that Vinny Pasquantino can't be that. And then when you face a lefty, you put Melendez behind the plate, you let Salvi DH instead, and we, when we go from there. So um, for folks that for folks that don't know Vinny Pasquantino, I am trying to harp to everybody who will listen about how awesome he is. So, Pat, I'm glad you kind of echoed some 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 similar thoughts in terms of him being a legitimate prospect. Because truthfully, if he would have been drafted in the third round instead of the eleventh round, we'd be talking about him in a similar way that we talk about like Kyle Isbell instead of him being like an afterthought because he plays the same position as Nick Prado. Yeah, uh, he's. I mean, these are my favorite prospects to look at too. Uh, these sort of interesting fringe uh, guys. Uh, I know if you've ever, if you're a regular reader of Fangraphs, they used to have those uh, like fringe prospects list, um, and I loved reading those. And I think a lot of those guys actually ended up becoming something. But that's exactly what Pasquantino is, um, and I think those guys uh, are really interesting to follow. Um, cause they don't fit necessarily the, uh, traditional, um, you know, prospect mold, but, uh, they perform and, uh, it's a matter of, can they keep it up? Yeah. One guy who does have the prospect pedigree that I know you've been ready to kind of rant and rave about, um, mm-hmm. let's just get it out of the way. Bobby Witt Jr. might... Honestly, the, the more I look at it, he is probably the best prospect in all of baseball. It's either him or Adley Rutschman, and I don't think Adley Rutschman had as good, anywhere close to as good of a season as Bobby Witt Jr. did. The one thing that Adley Rutschman does better than any of those other elite prospects is controls the zone, sort of similar to like Vinny Pasquantino, where he's not going to strike out much. He's going to walk a ton. We know Adley has the power, but once he starts like hitting for more, the way he controls his own is pretty impressive, and he's obviously very good behind home plate. In terms of actual production, age, position, and potential for the future, 
Bobby Witt Jr. might be the best prospect in baseball. He definitely probably had the best season in all of minor league baseball this year. I don't really know where you want to go with this, but go ahead and, 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 and get it all out, man. I know you've been cooped up all summer, haven't been really allowed to say much about other minor league teams. So go ahead and, and, and say what you, whatever you want. The time, the floor is yours. Andy Reid's time is yours. Let's hear about Bobby Witt Jr., man. Actually, I, wasn't paying attention to the minor league season uh, since I logged off in March. Uh, how did he do? <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, I think what you said, uh, if you're going to make an argument for the top prospect in baseball, uh, it basically begins and ends with uh, Witten Rushman. Um, I think arguments for both of those two um i think rushman obviously has the edge with positional value and you know you don't have to squint to see like a second coming of buster cozy with him um so i'm not going to blame anyone if you know they're still ranking him number one um i think honestly it's just personal preference uh for whoever you have at number one between those two maybe uh you could just slide in with uh uh julio rodriguez and make an argument there uh, that'd be the only other guy I'd really consider. Uh, but if you're going to give the edges to wit, it would be based on, um, I think, the thing that I've been impressed with the most is, other than really a short stint in the uh, AZL in 2019, he's basically been a guy that's just jumped from high school to double A. Um, uh, almost. Uh, so... Uh, at least in terms of game experience, and he's hit like that uh, in double A and triple A. Uh, that that's incredible. Um, so yeah, there's certainly things you can nitpick with him. Um, still swings and misses a little bit more than you'd like. Um, his K to walk ratio is not the best in the world, but I think when you add the context of basically he was jumping from high school to double A, uh, those are a little bit and obviously power and. Speed speed that he had presents uh those are definitely a little bit easier to swallow um so and obviously his pedigree too um uh guys like that you know i feel a lot better about um them figuring it out and figuring out a way to succeed at the highest level um and i think what fits that um he's very familiar you know with the major league lifestyle with his dad so um my concerns there are almost non-existent. Um, really excited to see what, you know, is in store for him over uh, the next few years. Um, I know a lot of fans uh, want or expect him to be on the opening day roster next year. I don't know if that's what will happen. Uh, it certainly could. Um, but uh, with how everything went from him. Um, he was dealt a tough hand basically since the time he was drafted. Barely got any experience his uh, debut season. Um, then the minor league season gets canceled his first full season, so he has no game experience to go off from there. Uh, but then he just, uh, you know, wows everyone. And basically what was his first big league spring training – and continued that to double A, triple A, did not slow down. So 
Um, almost a flawless season for him. And uh, it's fun to have a guy like this in the Royal system. Um, really something they haven't had since uh, Will Myers. You can maybe even go back as far as Carlos Beltran. Um, so it's uh, definitely exciting to watch. I think the thing that that encourages me, even with his strikeout to walk, kind of, I don't want to call it an issue, but if there is an issue with him, but that's what it is, is there are two types of guys when it comes to that. There's guys like Suli Matias who will swing through everything. Like they're trying to access elite amounts of power and they will swing through fastballs in the zone. Bobby Witt Jr. does swing through some pitches more than the average person a little bit, but a lot of his swing and miss issues are just chasing pitches like there, there were times earlier in the year when I would watch him at double A and the pitchers were clearly like, I'm not pitching to this guy. Screw you. You're going to chase pitches out of the zone, flip him sliders that were nowhere near hit him hittable. And he was so determined to just try to win every game with every swing that he was swinging at everything. And so there's a huge difference between guys who swing through everything in the zone and guys who are chasing too much. I think Witt Jr., what we saw from him was a classic case of, I'm Superman, I'm 21 years old, I can hit everything, and I'm going to hit everything, or I'm going to try at least. And it wasn't successful. We've seen over the last six weeks or so, his walk rate is up to about 10%. He's getting to the idea where, I think a lot of people misunderstand the whole walks argument, by the way. I'm not implying Witt Jr. should not swing at strikes so he can walk if the pitcher will walk him. What I'm implying is pitchers don't want to pitch to him. They will avoid throwing him strikes a lot. And yet he's not walking because he's trying to do too much. So he will naturally walk more if he just lets pitchers walk him because they don't want to throw him strikes. And over the last six weeks, we've seen that. We've seen him be more selective, find pitches he can hit out of the park. In turn, he's gone on a little home run spurt here and his walk rate is way up because there's less guys that are willing to throw him strikes. It's, Omaha kind of has a murderer's row right there in the middle of the lineup. And pitchers have basically said, look, if you're going to beat us, you're going to beat us with pitches that are fastballs elevated, breaking balls that are way away from you. And if you can get one of those out, then good for you, man. But we're not going to let you beat us in any other way. And he's starting to, like, understand that. It's kind of like that Lawrence Fishburne meme. He's like, he's beginning to believe. Um but he's starting to get it, and you can see it coming to him. And like you said, man, he almost went from playing his game experience in high school to the big leagues in like a couple of years. Like he almost did it. Like he really did mm-hmm. almost start the year on the big league roster. Like I think the Royals had to talk themselves out of it. Like, you know, there's there's hype around it, and I think it's easy to kind of maybe suggest that, oh, they were never really going to do it. They just want people to be excited. I really think well, they I think they were attempting it. I agree. I think coming out of the season, they were like, should we do it? Like, are we going to do it? Like, is this like, we're, we kind of have to, don't we? They're like, no, no, no. Like we don't want to screw it up. Like let's start them back. And then we can, we can always work our way back up. And then had he not gotten off to a slow start at double a, I guarantee we would have seen him at some point. I think the only reason we haven't seen him is because he got off to a little bit of a slow start for like a week. He had like a bad week at double a. And I bet you that's the only reason we haven't seen him yet. So Anyway, I, it's crazy how good this kid could be. And it cracks me up. Like, I don't want to call anybody out. But it cracks me up. Like, I saw somebody tweet, like, 
well, I was a little bit on the fence about Bobby Witt Jr.'s power, but it's like, dude, he just hit a ball 470 feet. It's like, what, what were you on the fence about? It's like, what do you mean you don't know if, if, if the tools are there or if it's all legit? Like, did you see that? Like, I don't care if the ball's juiced. 470 is 430. It's, you can take 40 feet off it. It's still over the bleachers. It's kind of like, um, you know, and, and was it major leagues? Like, ah, it's too high. It's too high. It's like, who cares? It's gone. It's so far out. So it's, it's funny to me that people, and, and, and I'll be the first one to admit that during the draft process, I kind of looked at Bobby Witt Jr. and the rest of the guys. And I'm like, man, if you can cut a deal for like $4 million, is it, is it maybe better to kind of go like what they did this year with Frank Mazzucato? And by the way, in my defense of that, that draft class looks stacked right now. Absolutely stacked. So mm-hmm. even, I mean, you know, at the time I still justify that thought process, but looking at it now, the Royals made a slam dunk move, giving him all the money he wanted and then putting arguably the best prospect in baseball in their system. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, uh, I would also say back to, uh, that uh, spring training conversation where I do believe that the Royals had some probably discussions or temptations about actually putting him on the opening roster, probably at second base. Um, I think they did ultimately make the right call though, as tempting as it was. Um, I think starting him in double A was the perfect spot because, um, you know, he really hadn't gotten his, you know, feet set in professional baseball at all until may of this year um so making it as easy for him as possible uh, i think was the right call and then giving him that experience in double a for an extended time and then challenging him another level in triple a where the pitchers you know i think are more polished and um closer to big league ready um so uh and you know he's just kept performing uh he hasn't slowed down um you know and you look at you know, it's never a guarantee as big of a prospect you are or as well as you hit in the minors that you're going to perform in the big league level. It's another animal. Um, you know, the perfect comp for that would be, uh, look what happened to Jerry Kelnick this year. Um, you can argue whether uh, he was rushed or he came up at the right time, but uh, it just shows how you have to be, you know, you know on the side of caution when – you're probably dealing with the uh, possibly the biggest impact this organization's had since Carlos Beltran. Uh, so, you know, you want to uh, always uh, be on the side of caution there. Um, he's not a guy that will um, hurt from more experience in the minors. Um, and, you know, uh, I think making the decision not to rush him and let him perform and let him hit uh, the highest level of the minors was their correct call. And it's looking like it obviously was. I'm out of final thoughts. Um, is there anything else you'd really like to talk about? I know you've kind of been AWOL on us. You've been working, you've been busy and stuff. Is there anything else you just like to get off your chest here while we're talking about Royals prospects? I'll jump onto the big league club for a second. Um, I did catch, uh, I think it was the one inning he threw, um, Dylan Coleman. Um, I'm a big fan of him. Um, I know um, Eno Saris and Max Bay 
over at the athletic to those uh, stuff and command grades, which I absolutely love. Um, I think it was Alec Lewis posted Coleman's numbers um, from his one outing, and they were outstanding. Um, and if you've watched him in AAA this year, I'm, I don't think that comes as a huge surprise. Uh, if he's a guy that can, you know, like 45 or 50 command um, at the big league level, uh, he's going to be an effective reliever. Um, the raw stuff he has is incredible. Uh, the strides he's made, he's made this season, this season is incredible. And um, I think he's a legit, uh, has the potential to be a legit impact arm in the bullpen um, for the next couple seasons if uh, he can manage to stay healthy and uh, keep up a decent level of command. Pick one long-term, Will Klein or Dylan Coleman? Um, I'll probably have to side with Coleman just because of his proximity uh, to a big league role. Um, obviously pitched at double-A, triple-A, and one game in majors this year. Uh, Klein, uh, obviously, same deal. Uh, raw stuff is tremendous. There's some fair questions with the command. Um, and when you have guys like that in high A, um, they can have, they can be super volatile um, in the next few levels. So, but obviously the potential is there with both of them uh, to be uh, very effective um, at what they do. Um, and, you know, I'm excited to keep watching both of them. Will Klein is one of my favorite prospects in this system. I really thought they might give him a chance to start. Like, I really thought that the possibility was on the table. And then coming out of the season, they had him throwing multiple innings at a time. I thought maybe they'd build him up. And he looks like he's definitely going to be a reliever. But I do think he's going to be a very good one. And having him and Coleman in the same bullpen is going to be fun. Um, and uh, and, and uh, yeah, other two other hard throwers they have right now. Uh, uh, Stalmont and uh, Mingo Tapia. So that will be flame emojis coming out with those four. <laughs> the flame emojis. All right, Pat, I am um, I'm out of stuff to talk about. My fingers are still on fire. We were talking about I grew Jamaican Scotch bonnet peppers in my garden on accident. And when I was picking them green, they weren't that spicy. Like, they were really good. They were spicy, but they were good. I let a few of them get orange, picked them off. I was getting ready to put them in a crock pot full of chili, took a bite out of one, and instantly could not breathe. So – the fact that we're actually talking right now is sort of impressive. I'm just glad to be alive, quite frankly. So I'm going to go upstairs and tend to my chili. Pat, thank you very much for joining me. It was great to talk baseball with you. It's been a while since you were kind of um, unleashed and allowed free reign in, in your in your baseball conversation. So um, thank you again for joining me, Pat. We will we need to do this again soon. We'll get you back on here uh, with Joel and I here pretty soon. We'll talk shop and keep doing it. Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it was fun. All right. Thank you all for listening. Joel and I will be back hopefully on Monday. Um, get a little uh, – a quick uh, podcast in celebrating what is hopefully going to be a couple minor league championships. Uh, Northwest Arkansas is 2-0. Omaha, I don't know what AAA is doing. I give up trying to figure out what they're doing for their postseason. Um, Quad Cities is 1-1 one one at the time of recording this, so – Hopefully on Monday we'll be back to record, celebrate a few championships. We'll talk to you all real soon. Thanks again for listening.